0: Imagine yourself in a spaceship millions of miles from Earth. You see the same people every day. The Earth, with all that it means to you, is just another bright star in the heavens. You aren't sure you'll ever get back
1: to it. Matheura <laughs> Akria. Do Oh yeah baby,
0: Werner von Braun. Yeah, what is there to say that has not been said about Werner von Braun? He really did have an
1: amazing life. Yeah. Very interesting life. Interesting life, in- in- interesting yeah, life to he's, say the He least. saw it all,
0: didn't he, really? Yeah. But we're going to be talking about Werner von Braun <laughs> for quite a bit today, Matt, so before... We go to the second most important person we're going to be talking about today. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, good. Thanks, Julio. Yes, we, we
1: should explain. We should explain that this episode is where we take the human missions to Mars all seriously, right? Yeah, right. During this Mars month. Do you know what is extraordinary about Mars month is that virtually everyone that has something to do with Mars, including Schiaparelli and what what day was Werner von Braun born on? He was born on the 23rd of March. He was, and I know that because a 23rd of March is the is George's birthday as well. It's also the day that lockdown started in Britain. <laughs> so we're almost coming up to a whole year of that. But yeah, Werner von Braun also a March person. Isn't that weird? So many Mars coincidences.
0: There must be something special about it. Yeah, yeah. Right? It is. Only only one every 12 people are born in March. Yeah, that's... Very special people.
1: Which, which makes
0: me think the astrology must be true. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm sure someone will start thinking, I oh, know, but you have to count the, the number of days in the month, mm. and then... So it's not, not, not quite, only one in 12, yeah. exactly. I, I
1: was being sloppy. Yeah, there, it's huh? a bit like that thing about... Mercury being the closest planet to Earth on average. Did you know that? How is that, Matt? Well, it's because it's got a much faster orbit than all the other planets. Mars spends a long oh, right. time the other side of the sun, as does Venus, whereas Mercury keeps coming around and getting close to uh, being on the right side. You right. See. So on average, it's the closest planet to all planets. So you have done
0: this calculation yourself?
1: I haven't. No, it's a recent calculation that someone did, and everyone was like quite shocked by the fact that Mercury is is the closest
0: planet. To I'm Earth. just, I'm just teasing you. Just teasing
1: you. Oh uh, yeah, I'd never be able to do that. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> anyway, so yes, so, yes. I think we. he uh, doesn't start with von Braun though. I think we should we, ju- we should quickly go over a little bit of the history leading up to von Braun. Sure.
0: Although he was quite quite early on.
1: Well well, I suppose, yeah, he's he's one of two, isn't he? Robert Goddard, after reading H. G. Wells, actually thought to himself, I, I I want to build rockets that go to Mars. And he actually climbed his cherry tree, and cherry tree seems to be seems to be cherry trees appear quite a lot in American history. He said, I imagined how wonderful it would be to make some device which had even the possibility of ascending to Mars. When I descended the tree, existence at last seemed very purposive.
0: Have you ever wondered how many people probably thought about going to Mars back then? I don't think many. So it's not so much who thinks about
1: it, but who writes it down. Yeah, who writes it down, who does something about it. To be fair, Robert Goddard did do something about it, and at the same time, a European writer called Kurt Larsvitz. He inspired Werner von Braun and Volta Hohmann. And Werner von Braun asked himself, how do you get up there? Werner von Braun really is the first person to write it all down, isn't he? Write down a serious mission to Mars.
0: Von Braun. Born in, uh, on, in in March, as you said, in 1912 in Germany. Okay, uh, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot said and written of this period of his life, all the way up to when he goes to the United States. I just want to mention that in 1930 he joined the Spaceflight Society. The Verein für Raumfahrt. Wow, that sounded perfect for my knowledge of German. I reckon that's pretty spot on. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but I wanted to mention this because during the interview of this episode, mm-hmm. which is where we talk about the British Interplanetary Society, Chris mentions that the VIS is the oldest still active space advocacy mm. group, right? But
1: this one was the oldest. Yes. This is, I mean, so this is the very first, isn't it? The the virin she fought is the oldest of all the
0: space societies. It was as as founded in 1927. Which is
1: six years before the British Interplanetary Society. Yeah. It was the model. It was the model for the British Interplanetary Society, as in they they looked at it and said, oh, this, this seems like a good idea.
0: Von Braun was, uh, was part of it. He was not one of the founders, actually. He joined it, interested hmm. in the topic. We can say that Vernon Von Braun is one or maybe even the most influential figure in terms of the, the history of planning missions to Mars, right? He hmm. has wrote one of the very first technical designs or technical definitions of what a Mars mission would be, a crewed Mar- Mars mission would be.
1: He's the Elvis Presley of space. <laughs> He's the true yeah. rock star, isn't he?
0: Yeah, indeed. So we chose to, um, as, as part of this episode, right, Mm-hmm. We said, okay, let's let's look at the different architectures of how to go to Mars. And today we're going to focus on two very particular ones. One is the Von Braun approach, and later on we will focus on the Zubrin approach, right? The Zubrin approach. Which are obviously there are similar similarities and also big differences between both, but we also have to take into account the different time period. Mm. The architecture by Von Braun evolved during his lifetime, of course. He started with a certain certain definition, and then over time he improved it and, and uh, streamlined it and took advantage of new discoveries in space. But for the purpose of this for this episode, I, I thought, let's focus on the early ones. I think it, it's fun to see the way of thinking back in the day. Uh, what I like about it, actually, is
1: when you see people like Werner von Braun or even Zubrin, when they do the maths, they realise just how incredibly difficult it is.
0: Yes, indeed. And the numbers are staggering. Your yeah, numbers are ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, back in 1949, he writes a novel called Project Mars, A Technical Tale. What is interesting is that it, even though this was written in 1949, it was published only in 2006. Mm. In English, the original German version was never was never published. However, the, the, that novel contains a technical appendix. That technical appendix was published in 1952 in, in German and then in 1953 in, in English. And this appendix alone, just the appendix of his novel, is the technical design of the human mission to Mars and quoted as the most influential book on planning human missions to Mars. He wrote the most influential book on planning human missions to Mars as an annex to his book, <laughs> <laughs> a book within the book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually incredible. Yeah. So based on that, um, I mean, von Braun always realized early on the importance of popular support to carry these projects, right? Hmm. Um, he he believed that you needed government support to carry these missions, and to have a government support in your projects, you need the people that that elect that government to support you. So he was a big believer in 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 communications, in in outreach, and in uh, popularizing these topics. So also uh, he um, he was part of a series of articles for Colliers on different topics on space. In particular, there is one on uh, how to get to Mars that describes this mission, but let's say for a regular person of the time. This was published in 1954. And I have to say, this series of articles have some really, really cool illustrations. For those that have never seen them, maybe we we should include a link on the notes because it has some of the best illustrations I have seen. Yeah,
1: brilliant. Uh, they, uh, they were, some of the illustrations they had as actual the original artwork at the uh, London Design Museum, and they're absolutely amazing. But yeah, th- just so anyone doesn't know what Collier's was, it was, Collier's had three million readers. It was a magazine, like a monthly magazine, three million readers. So, you know, it was, you know, that was popular back then,
0: yeah, quite quite yeah, a, that's like a massive, like massive readership. It's like <laughs> and, and like I said, this is he was Bon Brown was probably the one of the most known people in the in the space projects of the time, right? In the US. Mm. Really, really popular by name. Everyone knew him.
1: Yeah, I mean he's he still hadn't done his greatest mission yet though, had he? No, he still but hadn't early done on, Apollo, like but, you see, he yeah.
0: it's funny, he was so um Clever about self-promotion and, and, and outreach and the public. He was a science communicator as well, on top of yeah. being the the most important engineer for the Americans.
1: He's very charismatic,
0: extremely. When you see when you, when, you, when you see him on television, you go, "Wow, yeah."
1: I mean, he's, he's got a certain magnetism, definitely.
0: And by the way, for those that that want to see him on TV, now that everyone seems to have Disney Plus, there is this. Uh, this video called Man in Space. And this is a, a collection of different shorts that Disney made in partnership with Boone Brown, with Willie Lay in 1955. I rewatched it again. I used, to, I, I I, I had to have watched this when I was a kid. And then I, I this is clearly not the time, I, but I watched it again with, with let's say, fresh eyes, a, a new view. And it's amazing that this was done in 1955. Remember that? It- Sputnik does not happen until 1957. Yeah, I t- yeah. The, the 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 amount of um, knowledge that there is so much that yet that they don't know and yet so much that they can they can think about. Yeah, no one had been into space. It's incredible, isn't it? Exactly. Nothing not, <laughs> gone into space. Not even satellites. Satellites were not even proven yet. Yeah. They, they, obviously, they they were ideas. Or projects already ongoing, but there was no no, Actually, no Sputnik yet.
1: I I say nothing had been into space. Of course I am wrong. The only thing that had really been into space, of course, is V two rockets.
0: Technically, yes. You're right. It never reached orbit, but it suborbital. was suborbital.
1: Yeah. Suborbital though, yeah. yeah. My dad used to watch them going over his house as they <laughs> went towards London, obviously.
0: <laughs> he was watching history for for those listeners just just go watch it you have Von yeah, Brown uh, talking about his, his his rockets with 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 toy models and and willy lay and the depiction as well is so politically incorrect let's so,
1: let's work our way through the actual
0: plan because it's it's pretty pretty great isn't it the actual plan yes his plan is go big let's say he was inspired by by polar expeditions that as you know is Particular interest, interest, uh, topic of interest for myself as as well. So you could say it's sort of the opposite to Zubrin. Zubrin wants to to go direct with like the smallest mission you can accomplish. This is a big one, but also for his time, this is what he thought was the minimum. Later in his hmm. life, he he distills this mission definition and, and makes it much smaller and still feasible according to to his calculations. Okay.
1: Both Zubrin and von Braun continually mess around, don't they, with their particular architecture, but you have this starting point that is the reference mission.
0: Exactly, but you, you will not write it perfect the first time. Of, of course you can mm. keep improving. Like any artist, <laughs> you're never yeah. done with your...
1: But it's a experience. really great piece of insight, isn't it? The, the Von Braun one about looking at how people did things in the past, like Columbus or something like that, and would you try and cross the Atlantic in one ship no you wouldn't no way because it's just too dangerous so you would try and think right you'd go in a flotilla of ships
0: from day one he's thinking about redundancy yeah again go big okay uh for him interplanetary exploration only could be done on a grand scale so the reference period as you said for for this for this particular uh, architecture we're talking about 1954 before sputnik and uh Let's talk about the architecture itself, as you said. Mm. This is a mission that would take two and a half years, eight months uh, of travel direction in each, each way, so to Mars and back to Mars, and then around 15 months uh, in orbit of Mars, depending then on how long you take to land and, and set up your camp, but about 15 months on Mars. The travel distance, which for us Europeans, 571.3 million kilometers. We we are thinking this, this is a Hohmann transfer orbit that he would follow, and it would be composed of 70 crew. 70 crew. 70 <laughs> crew for the first mission to Mars. These people that they, they they would they would go on 10 as he I'm quoting him 10 massive spaceships. They would be 4,000 tons each. OK, now picture the time, <laughs> not even picture the time, pe- picture 20 years later when, when you have the Saturn V launching, the Saturn V was 140 tons per launch to lower orbit. So just to get one of these ships, you needed 29 Saturn V launches. Now times 10 times whatever extra you need to, I don't know, tools for assembly or or just personally going up and down. Uh, at least at least minimum 300 Saturn V launches for this yeah, mission. It's it's definitely ambitious. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go with that. So out of these ten ships, okay, as and as you said, as flotilla of ships, he he does not think that you can go on one ship alone. You need this sort of redundancy. Three of them, at least parts of them are the ones that will actually land on Mars. But I'll get to that later. Okay, He focuses on chemical propulsion, and he focuses on carrying everything. There is no concept of in-situ resource of the utilization or ISRU at the moment in, in his paper. Then he follows um, uh, okay, launch to low Earth orbit, assembly in orbit of these spaceships, and then you go all together to Mars. When you get to Mars, First, you achieve orbit, and then some of those ships will land, as we will go in details. Because he acknowledges, then, of course, and and this is clearly <laughs> his his expertise. He within his architecture, he acknowledges that it really would not make no sense to have everything landing and then launching back to Earth, right? So you stay in orbit in Mars.
1: Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put some numbers to your to your. To your things, yeah, 5,320,000 tons of propellant in total that he needs to get up to actually make this mission work. And he actually puts in the paper that that is 10% of the equivalent quantity of aviation fuel that was used in the six months of the Berlin airlift, so (laughs) 10 times. The fuel yeah, used in six months of one of the biggest operations
0: of all time <laughs> no, it's, yeah it's 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 insane again the scale that's it's it's very difficult to 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 get a, a sense of the scale of such a mission yeah i mean it's 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 mad and it, it's mad, but at the same time this is what he he's not <laughs> saying this is something we can do today. he's saying this is the mission that could happen a hundred years from now yeah 2054 which by the way is not, is not too far from 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 now yeah but this is what he thinks can be achieved in a hundred years in the, well, in, was... in between we had many people how many how many times the the mission to Mars has been planned for 2030
1: Oh yeah, just loads and loads well the 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 latest NASA paper of course, had that mind-blowing revelation that under the present NASA scheme, you would need 10. SLS launches to launch the fuel for it 10 SLS launches to launch just the fuel for the mission and that's that's when you had favorable uh, conditions so (laughs) again
0: the skill and and SLS would launch how many times a year well yeah you're
1: lucky if you're lucky if it's once yeah so I mean, so, it's just—it's not going to happen. In other words,
0: how much if you take ten years just to launch the the fuel? Okay, let, let's let's go back to to <laughs> to Werner. But he's already what I love about it, he's already
1: already he's he's sort of hitting the problems that are forever
0: going to snag this trip to Mars. Exactly, right? exactly. He he says, okay, his approach is okay. There are some things we know there are lots of things that we don't know. It does not mean that we cannot talk about those problems today and we can identify what things we don't know because this is how, we, this is how you do science, right? You identify what you don't know and then you can, you can carry on research specifically on those topics. Hmm. So, but I'm going to go into that a little bit later. I, I, first, I, just to complete the architecture of the mission, okay, we are going in this flotilla of 10 massive spaceships to Mars. We are in orbit. And as I told you before, three of those ships are special. Parts of them are the ones that will actually land. So first you take one of those ships that will have a sort of torpedo nose cone, okay? That torpedo nose cone becomes the the fuselage of your plane that will land on Mars. You will attach huge wings and skis. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) First of all, the huge wings at the time they did really not know how thin the atmosphere was so they thought you could glide into mars and the skis because he he was thinking that at the polar caps was the only place where you could have a smooth enough surface to land so he sends this first crew of if i remember correctly seven people to 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 land at the poles and then they have to let's say strip this plane take the parts that they need, and travel by land 6,400 kilometers to the equator. No highways, by the way.
1: Yeah, but the, the equator bit is that they've they've already scoped that out from orbit, haven't they? So from orbit, they've used a telescope to select a site for the base camp.
0: But they need to land at
1: the, at the polar caps. But but the reason why they land at the polar caps is because Werner von Braun's made the assumption that it will be icy and therefore more likely to be smooth.
0: Exactly. Just imagine crossing this land of 6,400 kilometres. They have to do some proper <laughs> mapping first.
1: Well, the, the crazy thing, they'd be the first people to see Mars. So this would be the first time you'd go, oh, this is this is what we're dealing with
0: yeah because there's no even,
1: telescope powerful enough to see it
0: even in this paper he mentions how uh, the atmosphere blurs the what you can see with a telescope so he's not even this guy is thinking about human missions to mars but he's not thinking of satellites <laughs> that can map mars in advance mm. he does he goes a little bit into that uh, later on but okay you have now this crew traveling this immense distance to the equator what's it 4000 where- miles Four thousand miles or six thousand four hundred kilometers. <laughs> the first, this first rocket plane they use, they abandon it in the polar caps. They get to the equator and they have to build the base and they mm-hmm. have to build a runway, where in this runway the other two with the other two rocket rocket planes with the with the rest of the crew can land. But okay, they've got so wheels, haven't they? The other the other ones have got. The wheels other ones would th- have wheels in the yeah, yeah. indeed. And I. I Indeed, you sort of, if you're building a runway with whatever you have on Mars, you are doing in situ resource utilization in a way. Hmm. But what I meant before was for like rocket fuel and food and air. Anyway, now you spend 15 months or a little bit more than a year on Mars. Well, I really, the one bit I really like is as
1: these wheeled craft land, the very first job is to get is to take the wings off yes and then and hoist them upright so they they look like v2 rockets ready to launch as in it's like get them ready for emergencies because all the time they're on the ground you're stuffed so the very yeah. first job is to get them ready to take
0: off that's yes. the very so first in, job that he thinks of it's ace in his view these rocket planes are also you just remove the remove the wings you erect them and there you have a rocket. Hmm. I want to have one of these machines. I want oh. these machines to exist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What the, the, Do they live in inflatable
1: habitats? That's right, isn't it?
0: They, yes, he mentioned some sort of inflatable habitats well, as well think, as protection. I
1: I, mean, I, mean, I think that that's, that's massively forward thinking, isn't it? Thinking of
0: inflatable habitats. Yes, yes. But there are many, many things that he was very forward thinking about. The guy. For for us for those of us in the, in the industry, what what can you say about the guy? He he's again he's the mo- one of the most influential figures. He invented so many things.
1: But there are other things going on around the world as well. I mean, it, he's not maybe on his own because over in the BIS, and this is something that I mentioned in the interview, is that uh, that Shepherd and Cleaver. Val Cleaver of the BIS, had written the first unclassified nuclear mission to Mars, so using nuclear propulsion to get to Mars. I don't think they'd sort of fleshed out the the entire architecture, but that was 1948.
0: Yes, and and what is funny is that in in this paper, he mentions a new propellant that would make the trip much shorter, Mm. but he does not mention what it is. Hmm. Oh, well, I it, could uh, assume he's he's hinting at repropriation.
1: Because yeah, Arthur C. Clarke writes Sands of Mars as well, 1951, which uses and the most ridiculous thing is that it uses a rocket called the Ares,
0: Yeah. Which mean.
1: is like ugh, which which presumably is one of the very first mentions of it, but it just keeps <laughs> Aris just keeps getting Yeah, but God of War <laughs> Mars. <laughs> It's I know the other but name. I know but it's so it's obvious I, but everyone just just doesn't give it up <laughs> but uh, but Arthur C Clarke has, has sort of outlined a, a sort of um uh architecture in, in the book Sands Sands of Mars so it's it's not like Werner von Braun's completely out of the blue we got to no, no, get no, we got we got to put that into some kind of perspective
0: no as, as we said we we talk about the different the, the different space societies around the world popping up lots of interest in, in the topic of of rocketry and going to space mm. i mean von braun becomes this figure behind the the human space flight in the us the missions to the moon i guess also part of that is why we revere the guy so much mm. okay yeah. But in going back to this nineteen fifty-four, where I think there is a the guy goes f- for for this grand scale of a mission, but at the same time I find him quite humble because he says this is going to happen in a hundred years from now. There are I don't know the majority of the things I don't know, but I count on these hundred years of research of science to discover and help he's saying most of the ideas that we are I will describe here today are probably going to be obsolete by the time this happens but this is that this still today we can talk about it we can talk about the problems we have today and he then the focus on on this on these papers on on man and again uh, within in these days of politically correctness the guys use, just uses man so for the epi- for the purpose of this episode I'm using man instead of crew okay but he says man is the weakest link and there is a lot of focus on 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 the unknowns in in medicine and and psychology connected to a mission like this to Mars for the length of the stay for the isolation uh he mentions mu- muscle atrophy he proposes spring exercise machines, wow. as we have in the ISS. He proposes synthetic gravity, so rotating the spacecraft to create a centrifugal force and create a artificial gravity. I just the I I love synthetic gravity. I yeah. think I will start using it <laughs> instead of the saying artificial gravity. I will start using this one. From synthetic now on. gravity, yeah, no, yeah. nice. Do you want to know um,
1: what the do you know what a, what the top four risks are going to Mars? Because he's he's nailed most of them in that paper. But still, NASA NASA the top four red risks, as in career, uh, as in mission ending risks, are radiation, radiation, yes, radiation, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and cognitive, de- uh, you know, and, and cognitive disability, all caused by radiation. Right, so so like that is a nightmare. Then you've got um, neuroocular syndrome, which is that thing you start to go blind, basically, mm-hmm. which is a massive problem on the ISS. And uh, then you've got behavioural health and performance uh, decreasing uh, because <laughs> uh, well, massive. And of course, food and nutrition—they're the—they're the four still red risks for going to Mars. That, are, uh, that remain and unsolved, some of them. and he's nailed pretty much all of them. There really, apart from the ones he, that he didn't know
0: about. Yeah, food not so much, and and but he also he focuses on on f- for instance, uh, for we're talking about psychology and, and behavior. He acknowledges that the crew needs to be entertained if you don't want them to kill each other. <laughs> He mentions the psychology and the the need to entertain the crew and the importance of selecting the right crew. According to him, one in 6,000 people would be qualified for this trip. Yeah, physical attributes, mental attributes, emotional attributes. This is not yet counting education. So one in 6,000, you still need them to be an engineer or scientist or something. Again, the entertainment is big for him because he says you are going to be confined with this for these long periods with all these people. the The minor things of every day will will just get on your on your head, and he mentions that this could lead to hatred, that could lead to murder. There was really he was not sugarcoating anything here.
1: No, well, uh, he's absolutely right, and and of course there is there is experience of that, isn't there? When you've got things like things like the mutiny on the bounty had only been like 100 years earlier or something like that. And and you think, yeah, so there is a precedence for that. But I love that insight again of of you've got to take lots of people because there is no help from home. So you have to take doctors. You have to take engineers. You have to take farmers. You have to take – you basically have to take everyone because you're you're kind of stuffed uh, unless you have everyone there. So you have to have – how many people was it again? You have <laughs> 70.
0: Uh, 70, 70 crew. But also when he mentions okay, you, you mentioned radiation. He proposes to surround the cabin crews in the fuel tanks with with, with fuel tanks as a sort of radiation protection. I just think of the <laughs> what if you have a fuel leak. But okay, it, it, this this is this this particular design. Has been mentioned over and over again in other archi- architectures to surround the crew with, I don't know, the water tanks mm. or uh, propellant tanks. Um, and he actually hopes for these hundred years that there is a sort of development of a radi- radiation pill that would just a pill that would protect you from from the dangers of radiation, which is pretty much what you get in the expanse.
1: They are trying to develop those kind of pills, and of course, you could even go down the whole CRISPR genetically engineer people to be less susceptible to radiation, illness. But
0: basically you need something able to repair your DNA or at least something. If you have that pill for space travel, you also have the cure for cancer. That
1: might be one of the sort of upsides of COVID, but that's another story altogether.
0: He says that this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons to have the multiple ships. He counts, he... Almost counts that at least one of those ships will have to be abandoned for because of the meteorite strike. Wow! And he mentions the different engineering problems you could have that you have to black holes, which made me think of the ISS. Um, and but also he he, he these micro meteorites he describes uh, uh, he describes them as bullets, so all these engineering problems coming from it. But I'm sure he's also thinking, yes, and this is, some people are going to die here. Hmm. You're talking about bullets going through the the cabin crews. Someone, and another reason to have 70 people. He's not saying it in so many words, but the guy is probably thinking, if you will die.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, not only do you need to take one doctor, you need to take three doctors. Because the likelihoods are two of them might die on the journey. And <laughs> You definitely need a doctor regardless. So, yeah, yeah hence the 70 people, isn't it? Which, which which is, like you said, it's based on Antarctic expeditions of the day. So the Operation High Jump, for example, was 4,000 men, 13 ships, 23 aircraft. So, you know... And if they, if w- you
0: need 4,000 men, okay, that's a lot of redundancy. When you narrow it down to 70... It sounds like a lot for our current space missions, yeah. But it's really a major.
1: But coming update. out of yeah, coming out of that sort of larger yeah. exploration goals, you suddenly realise no, actually that would have been maybe back then. Back back then, it's easier to think of these larger
0: numbers because that's how we were exploring the world. And I have the impression that the, what is today okay? Our biggest problem today for achieving something like this. Cost of launch, hmm. right? We seem to be going in the right direction, but it's still today, the cost of launch. I don't know how much this was present back then. How much it really costs to launch this amount of? Uh, Do you know what? Mass.
1: I, I tell you what's funny that, that I've um, round about the same time, um, and uh, again, Chris Chris mentions this. Arthur C. Clarke wrote a bunch of articles. Um, and one of the things he mentions is that it's always going to be insanely expensive. So he actually predicts, and this is one of the most remarkable predictions as far as I'm I'm concerned or aware of, he predicts that, yes, we'll go to the moon, but it'll be so insanely expensive, we'll do it a couple of times, and then we won't do it for another 50 years. And it, it's like, wow, he's pretty much exactly guessed what was going to happen. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like because yeah, that I think they did not maybe not then, but a little bit later, way before they actually went to the moon, they had realized that this is unbelievably expensive and unbelievably difficult. You know, that the rocket equation had been around for a long time at this point. Yeah. And and that's really there is no getting around it, is there? It is the tyranny of the rocket equation.
0: At the same time, there was the hope of new propellants being mm. discovered that would improve that.
1: Well, yeah, that's the sort of yeah, I mean the nu- nuclear the was the yeah, future. yeah the nuclear thing was on the horizon, I suppose.
0: And you know, just just to, I found two two little things about this this proposal from from Von Brown from back in the day. Well, he also thinks about the cleanliness of the air. That's very important. He, uh, but what's funny is that he thinks that the distance will be too far for a TV signal. Hmm. Too far from that. And this is, a, this is that case in which you have these people thinking about traveling to other planets and having these massive crews and things that, will, uh, things that will, at the end of the day, evolve much, much slower than they expected. And yet these everyday things like TV, yeah. they think it will be much harder to develop. Well, I mean, it's
1: amazing, isn't it? So, fifty-two, he's saying, "Yeah, no, it's going to be impossible." Because he, he even said it about Earth to, to Moon missions as well. He said, "TV, yeah. forget about it. It's going to be, it's just going to be impractical." Yet, it's and only, now we have
0: videos of of landings on yeah,
1: Mars. Yeah, well, well, it's only sixteen years later that Neil Armstrong is 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 having his footage delivered live to five hundred yeah. million people, and you think that that is an amazing. Um, that's the age of the television. I suppose we've just lived through the age of the internet where a similar sort of things happen, doesn't it, really?
0: Indeed, indeed. He also, so he, he assumes that all entertainment will come via radio, and he recommends that the radio is censored, because he says, what if something happens to, you know, to the town of one of the crew members or the family of one of the crew members, you do not want that information to reach that person because, because it could affect the mission. Hmm. It's sort of cruel in a way. But that's a way of thinking back in the day, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they have some protocols like that, don't they, still?
0: Um, yeah, I don't know what the protocols. But that's that's a very interesting question. Very interesting question. Yeah. Anyway, just to finish with him, so he's saying we're going to do this 100 years from now, so in the 2050s. So he also mentions hibernation. Hmm. At that time, they are still starting to experiment, especially in France, with reducing the body temperature for certain Surgical operations. Even then, he he, even hinting at that, he's already thinking, ah, if I can hibernate people, less food, less muscle atrophy, they are in top shape when we get to Mars. But okay, this is hundred years from now. We'll see.
1: The one that I really like is in, it by the time we get to 1975. So uh, von Braun's obviously had his major success of Apollo. His 15 minutes of fame. He's definitely had his 15 minutes of fame, but he's had Apollo success. And he then goes on to discuss how you could use the space shuttle, reconfigure it, and uh, nuclear thermal rocket engines on a couple of spacecraft to get them over to Mars as part of this Mars project. So he's always kind of building on this Mars project. And that by 1975, he's he's abandoned chemical propulsion in favor of uh, nuclear propulsion. Indeed, I think NASA. I think NASA are about to pivot again to nuclear propulsion. After that, <laughs> ten launches of SLS is just to get the fuel.
0: On that, we have to wait and see. I, I what what, is, what are the latest developments on that? We are definitely not working on. Uh, at least on ASA side, we're not working on full force on developing nuclear propulsion. Yeah, but so. it
1: doesn't look as though anyone is. I think it's been abandoned, hasn't it? But NASA have gone back into thinking about it because that in their in one of these latest papers about getting to Mars, it's it's hey, we we really need to look at nuclear propulsion again.
0: But these concepts are never fully abandoned. You always have some study in, in advanced concepts. Some funding always go, but obviously it always depends on the level of funding you want to put and how much you want to accelerate the research on that.
1: Yeah. I oh, know absolutely. It's definitely something that's interesting. I mean that the UK government, I know, are putting money into Rolls-Royce to develop nuclear engines. So that you know, people are looking at it again. Von Braun has done he's absolutely smashed it out of the park, hasn't he, with Das Mars project.
0: Yeah, and like like I said, he obviously for the rest of his life, he streamlined, he perfected his plan. There are many newer versions. I was just focused on on, on the one of the early 1950s because he was fun. It's the yardstick. Yes.
1: the one. Indeed. It's the one that everyone really sort of goes back to. And at the end of the day, his entire career just like, in, in, echoed with Elon Musk as well, isn't it? That it
0: That's the end game. Yeah. Okay
1: Mars is the end game for for von Braun. After von Braun, of course there was quite a lot of um, these things coming up. Russians did one. the Martian piloted complex, Bono Mars, the NASA Lewis Mars, the TMK2. There was an interesting one by L uh, Robert L. Stahl called an expedition to Mars employing shuttle era system solar sail and Aero capture that was 1982 and what i thought was incredible about that is it was a crew size of 8 but it required 53 space shuttle launches
0: remind me the remind me the lift capacity of the shuttle 27 tons compared compared to the rockets in operation today it's big but not as big as the super heavies we're working on now mm or or the saturn V? yeah 5. The, Sa- the saturn 5 27 is, yeah, tons compared to the saturn 5 that we said before was 140
1: yeah but remember you if you're talking about space shuttle systems if you take the orbiter off and you design a new cargo version
0: ah okay so this this version was focused on not using the the, the orbiter actually okay.
1: a bit like sls like the energia yeah, like Energia, but more like SLS because uh, you're using those the, the advanced solid propellers. Solid propellers, yeah. yeah. So that I think that I think that's kind of what it was based on. Um, I'm assuming because it's 1.3 million tons. He's got to get up there in in that particular. Yeah, you have in Energia at
0: around 100 tons as well. Yeah. Because also with the with the shuttle, the the central tank, you don't have a, You don't have an engine there.
1: No, exactly. So yeah. you would have to add the engine. Yeah, well, part. that's that's why the Russian system was better. Really, Energia is, is still one of the greatest <laughs> rockets ever built. Uh, Boosters.
0: It's a such a it's a tragic story.
1: But it was the fall of the Soviet Union, wasn't it? Really, that and then it was all lost. the The big thing in this one was was Mariner four, and this is something we said a couple of episodes ago. Nineteen sixty four showed that that Mars was this cold desert world and I think from that point onwards no one was in that much of a rush to go to Mars anymore uh, and so it in by 1969 despite Spiro Agnew's space task force um, they decided no let's abandon Mars and that was kind of like a proper NASA decision but over the years people realized that Mars even though it was a desert, potentially could have had life on it so you started getting nasa interested in sending robotic missions there to look for water and then you had uh sci-fi writers like kim stanley robinson writing about um going there to sort of uh uh, you know reigniting the kind of um trip to mars so by red mars red mars blue mars green mars such a good thing um, amazing and and really really good um outline of how to do it using space shuttles again <laughs> weirdly and yeah. and uh, nuclear propulsion um but 1990 George Bush made the spe- space exploration initiative in sorry in 1989 the space exploration initiative by George H W Bush um and it was to uh you know, get people back to Mars. And NASA did a 90-day study and created this enormous plan, which uh, Zubrin described as Battlestar Galactica. In In other words, what NASA seemed to be doing was trying to use every single piece of technology they could to get to Mars. And as far as Zubrin was concerned, this was like what engineers shouldn't be doing. As in, that's that's not what an engineer does. An engineer tries to
0: do, look at the, the problem, work, the, in the simplest yeah, way, possible, simplest way possible, with the yeah smallest amount of risk. So by sim- the simplicity of the technology that you
1: choose, yes. Zubrin obviously came up with Mars Direct, 1990, as a direct response to this 90-day study that NASA had done, which was a direct response to Bush's Space Exploration Initiative, 1989. And Zubrin reckoned Mars Direct would nine percent the cost of NASA's design. And the breakthrough in the Zubrin one, which I think is the breakthrough, I think this is this is the thinking nowadays, isn't it? That um, you would use ISRU in situ resource utilization to manufacture rocket propellant. Now mm. it's almost certain that he got that idea again from the Journal of the British Interplanetary. Society from a paper by James French that was published in 1989, where it basically used the Sabatier process to, to make methane, I believe, on um, uh, on Mars. Zubrin's one, again, is one of those ones now, has very much become the kind of touchstone, hasn't it, the Mars direct?
0: When you talk about different architectures, yes, definitely one of the better known ones right
1: yeah but i think he hit it at the wrong time this is like 1990 but dan golden of nasa who was the administrator in 1992 basically abandoned human exploration beyond earth orbit
0: well that that was the age of faster better cheaper yeah
1: and it was just like yep yeah, we're just going to go we're going to go with robots to mars and everywhere else which which in some ways has been amazing you know, we've got Perseverance and all those kind of things. But not great for Zubrin because he he was convinced that this plan was going to work. So when he put this together, it was basically a longer surface, surface stay. It was a faster flight because it's a conjunction class mission. It used in-situ resource utilisation. The craft would be launched directly from the surface of Earth to Mars as opposed to being assembled in orbit or by a space based dry dock he started putting this together and he worked for martin marietta who basically said okay there's 12 man team you go focus on this and uh they they put together this paper which was so popular at the time when they when they first uh read it out at the national space society after going on a tour with it it received a standing ovation Kind of like Musk did with his BFR, you know. Zubrin and David Baker were becoming that kind of legendary status, I suppose.
0: Also controversial figures.
1: Oh yeah, right. I love Zubrin though. I, I kind of like his <laughs> his ludicrous persona.
0: But oh, don't don't get me wrong. I, I love these sort of, these sort of people. Yeah. If you don't have that. <laughs> How many times these are the people that really move things forward?
1: Yeah, well, you've got to be a bit spiky, haven't you? You've got to be convinced that yeah. you're right. Otherwise, you're not gonna push it. You're not gonna push it.
0: If everyone is your friend, if you don't make any enemies, you're not you're not doing you're not moving forward. Yeah. You have to get someone pissed off. You, you if you really have to move forward, if you were if you really want things, if you really want to change things, by definition, you are bothering the status quo. That's that's how it is. Yeah.
1: He's kind for me, Zubrin is like the Alan Bond of America. He's um
0: That's an interesting comparison. Uh
1: we've had him on the podcast a couple of times and uh it's been yeah, yeah. super fun. Bond as well. And Bond, yeah. I, I interviewed Bond and Zubrin on the same day, weirdly. Once. <laughs> Which was good. Because it was a good day. Um, mission profile, then, for Zubrin's Mars Direct. The first launch, guess what the name of the rocket is? Miss Biggie. No, it's the Ares.
0: Ah, ah, or Ares. So
1: Again, it's a heavy lu- a heavy lift booster sort of like Saturn V, derived from the space shuttle components, using the advanced solid rocket boosters, modified shuttle external tank, liquid hydrogen, liquid uh oxygen third stage for trans-Mars injection, can put 121 tons into circular orbit and boost 47 tons towards Mars.
0: There you go. Still,
1: still not the Saturn V. Still not the Saturn V. Um, so ERV, the Earth Return Vehicle, is what's going to be launched on that. So the upper stage comprises this living accommodation for the crew, which was going to be a six-month return trip, so six-month journey time, uh, the lower stage containing rocket engines and a small chemical production plant, which we'll get onto in a minute. Once it's arrived, the uh, ERV landed on Mars It then spends the next 10 months using the Sabatier reaction, uh, which is basically a chemical process that's been used for centuries on Earth. So they've pretty much nailed it as something that can be done. They would start making 112 tonnes of methane and oxygen using the hydrogen that they've carried and the carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere. So you would start making methane and oxygen, which, of course, is one of the reasons why Elon Musk has started making things like the Raptor engine, because it burns methane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not the only reason. So 96 tonnes of the methane and oxygen would be needed to send the Earth return vehicle back.
0: And this is is all... With this first uncrewed, yeah. So mission, so this, yeah. Everything has to be automatic. Yeah. So it's all completely automatic. The Earth return vehicle
1: has gone all the way there, lands, makes its own fuel, and then once it's done all that, it sends. Oh, it makes ninety six tons for the return journey, and the extra whatever it is twenty tons of is used for things like your surface stay. So things like Mars rovers and stuff like that that you need to get about. Once it's done that, once it's created that fuel, it sends a signal back to Earth to say it, we're good to go to launch the next part, uh, which is going to be two years, a little bit over two years after that first launch. You send the signal. The Mars Habitat unit is what then gets launched. Again, six-month journey. So that's a low-energy transfer tra- trajectory to Mars, the Hohmann transfer and that's carrying four crew members, which is the minimum required, so that you've got two teams of two, meaning that no one's ever left alone.
0: But here is where you end up having the problem of the disciplines. Yeah. Right? You have to be multiple but only disciplines. Only for people. Yeah. How, <laughs> how, how if you, <laughs> We were discussing before that you need three medical doctors.
1: Yeah, but remember that he, he's calling this really a, moon, a lunar class mission. In other words, it's like forget the von Braun's epic missions to Mars. Let's just do it lunar class. So we yeah, know that
0: still you're going to be one more than a year. Oh yeah. That, you're, yeah. You're still but to, you're still going to be more than a year. But way. I think
1: the difference is, I guess, is that he knows that these people can talk to the ground, even though there's gonna be delays. True. It's not it's not like von Braun who just assume these people are on their own.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and telemedicine is a thing by now, yeah.
1: by the way. exactly so i i think you know it's it's still ambition it's clearly massively
0: dangerous but i still wonder for these four people then what are the disciplines that you need do they have to be all pilot engineers and that's it pilot engineers and i think they'd i think they'd
1: be very similar to you know with astronauts today really let's say some sort of medical training that have been down the caves have done all that stuff (laughs)
0: These, these these characters would put Neil Armstrong to oh, shame. Oh, yeah.
1: The, the, the Whoever steps foot on Mars first.
0: Not because of the achievement, I'm just meaning, you are not going for 40. Oh, you're days. not going to be a
1: fighter pilot, uh, just a brave fighter pilot. You are, well, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to call Neil Armstrong just a brave fighter pilot. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> that's an <laughs> understatement of yeah. the century. Yes. But, yeah, you, no, you're absolutely right. But, but, you know, but that's like any discipline, isn't it? It's, it's in the same way that sprinters are getting faster, chess players are getting better, you know, you'd expect the the people going to mars to be of a different caliber to the people that went to the moon because all the training methods are there all the in virtually every discipline like that people tend to be have to be better don't they
0: yeah and, and we we have done the test, obviously yep. mars 500 be one of them all these tests of yep. l- long separation small crews so it should work yeah
1: Oh, well, the one thing I love about this, again, is that it, he's thought about um, artificial gravity. So that so he tethers the Habitat unit to the spent upper stage of the booster, and then they rotate around and, and give you a 1G working environment so that they don't have the long-term illness associated with weightlessness. The upper stage gets jettisoned as you, as you approach Mars, and then the Habitat unit aero-breaks into Mars and does a soft landing somewhere near that original earth return vehicle. Now I think they would have more than one earth return vehicle so that there's always a redundant vehicle somewhere on the um on Mars. That's certainly the case in the Martian and the Martian uses really the um Mars direct architecture as their.
0: Yeah, at the same time, what if you land on the wrong spot by by because you have to have some emergency maneuver.
1: There is a a rover as part of the as part of this Mars habitat unit. When when you, <laughs> it's carrying scientific gear, it's carrying a small rover, it's it's carrying all the inflatable habitats that are required. So yeah, it's 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 this is this is a big old thing. This habitat unit,
0: and you you can see how Andy, we are really. Took lots of inspiration from this for, for the Martian, indeed.
1: It uh, Mars Direct appears in lots of films, books, and programs. It, the National Geographic Mars uh, program they did is essentially Mars Direct as well.
0: If we said that Von Braun was the most influential architecture because of the time hmm. when it was written and everything, can we call Suren's the second most influential one?
1: I think it's vying for top spot. It's a bit like saying who's more influential out of Elvis and the Beatles.
0: No, I mean for me, no questions that that Von Braun is the most influential. Number one, it's just it was there at the yeah. beginning, and it set the pace for everyone else. This one, this one comes dec- decades later. I'm just meaning with forgetting Von Braun. He's yeah, but it
1: it top kind top. of rips. It is his number. Yeah, two. but it rips that it rips Von Braun's up, doesn't it? It's like saying actually. We need to think. I like Zubrins because it it's thinking beyond. The thing about people like von Braun is that they are so influential, people stop thinking beyond what they have suggested. Whereas Zubrin is bold enough to go, oh, NASA, you've got it wrong, and von Braun, you've got it wrong. This is how it should be done.
0: You know, this just made me think of something I was reading uh, in, in Eric Berger's book. Lift-off, mm-hmm. when he's talking about the part between uh, rocket plane Kistler and his company, how uh, the CEO was George Mueller, mm-hmm. right? He was this big, big figure during the Apollo times. He was director of uh, human spaceflight at NASA, yeah. right? There's a sort of parallel there. Yeah,
1: well, I'm, there's lots of parallels everywhere. It's a bit like Isaac Newton. No one questions the laws of you know, the laws of motion, until Einstein comes along and goes, we're going to have to think differently, you know. And then it's like, let's think differently about gravity. And everyone goes, oh my God, what have you done?
0: Sure, but Newton still works. Newton still works, but... It- You're not thinking differently. I mean, you are, okay, you are thinking differently, <laughs> but for the for the day-to-day uses, yeah, you still yeah. use
1: Newton. Uh, Newton's still the most influential scientist, or is he, or is, or is Einstein? The most influential, I think y- 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 it's almost silly, isn't it, to start comparing them? But I think Zubrin's currently is still the most feasible Mars journey, isn't it? If 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 one journey was going to happen, it's it wouldn't be the von Braun one.
0: No, of course you're not going to go with the flotilla or well, why not? I don't
1: know. Of course, you see this. There's another thing, isn't it? It's like at the moment, Zub. Well, at the moment, I'm
0: thinking of the realities of 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 uh, launch, I'm thinking of the realities of political willingness. Uh, so, of course, things could yeah. change. Well, that's it, isn't it? I, 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 well, we know I would they probably do. Eat my hat at some point, but still. but we
1: know they do because you just look at the history of Mars, the way that people have been planning for the trip to Mars. It, it's it's always. It shifts and moves around, doesn't it? Sometimes it's rocket propulsion. Sometimes it's nuclear propulsion. Sometimes it's more ships. Sometimes it's less ships. Sometimes it's stay. But, sometimes it's come back. Sometimes it's conjunction. Sometimes it's you know. It's, but for it's just,
0: the idea of having to launch three hundred Saturn V class of rockets in a relatively short time, but that's what to but That's what
1: Musk is everything. doing, though, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the whole point of Starship, for example. Is is that he he needs that kind of cadence to make starship make sense
0: but they have such a hard time visualizing it how <laughs> you get to that level of cadence you know that how it's so many launches of course 300 in the end if you can do it once a day you're done in a year you assemble everything and you can go but it just seems so far away from from our current reality yeah I look. I I hope it happens. Don't I, I? I really want this to happen. It's just I don't know how to visualize it. Every time we talk about
1: trips to Mars and human trips to Mars, the moment you start scraping at the surface, you realize this this really is the greatest undertaking that mankind has ever done. But then, so was crossing the Atlantic, and so was and so was all... going to Antarctica, and so was you know, building the Suez Canal, and so was, you know, etc., etc. The
0: pyramids. And the pyramids,
1: yeah. <laughs> and no. you think, what I love about people like von Braun, Zubrin, et cetera, is that they're not daunted by the fact that this is just a ludicrous, that this will be the biggest engineering project of all time. It's almost like that's what makes them want to do it.
0: Yeah, not because it is easy, but because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Zubrin is trying to make it easier.
1: Yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, Zubrin is trying to make it easier. And I think combined with, because um, Zubrin's con- uh, done a sort of version of this where he uses um, Falcon Heavies. So you mm-hmm. can you send two crew on a Falcon Heavy and you use Dragon as the habitat. And even NASA had worked out that uh, Dragon was capable of landing on the Martian surface with a uh, fully propulsive landing on, on Mars. So it was all
0: fees. It, but by now red dragon. It's canceled, is yeah, it's because, no yeah,
1: canceled. Yeah. Yeah. To have the feet that popped out of the heat shield was just too difficult. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know whether the Zubrin design actually relied on red dragon or whether you would just use the parachutes and just have a, uh, a slightly modified version that, that whacked down onto the ground instead of into the sea.
0: I don't know with the history with the history of landing on Mars yeah it's and and, and crewed spacecraft
1: oh well imagine imagine I doing it in a starship for the first time with that crazy maneuver
0: <laughs> sure but with starship at least you would be landing propulsive yeah
1: what would you would you would you like to land propulsive you know if you're going to land which which one you've got Wings, propulsion or parachutes? Which one would you rather? I'd rather do wings myself. But then Mars is useless for but that. But the atmosphere is not yeah. dense so, enough. For so these, it's useless so for that. Forget the Parachutes wings. or parachutes or propulsion?
0: Propulsion. Really? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well what's what's more like what's what's less likely to work? A parachute or a rocket engine?
0: Yeah, I know that you have a good point, but it's the same as when, when Flying, They tell you flying on a plane is safer than driving your car. But if I have propulsion, I feel more in control than if I have a parachute.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one.
0: Would you like to have brakes on your car or would you like to have a parachute behind your car?
1: Uh, I'd definitely rather have brakes on my car.
0: <laughs> that's, that's how I think <laughs> about propulsion. <laughs> it's I've got a really feeling
1: but... that brakes are more reliable than restarting a
0: rocket engine. Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, well get there. Uh, yeah, I mean, and 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 probably you would you would you would have a combination of both, right? Well, would you, or well, you would not have parachutes on Starship? Not on Starship, but if you were landing with a capsule,
1: if you were going in a Dragon, yeah, yeah. But of course, I mean, SpaceX have got their m- Mars mission outlined on, um, on their website, which is basically launching boosters and, and landing a Starship on the on the uh. On the Mars surface, which I think Zubrin doesn't particularly like, does he? Because he thinks it's too large a spaceship to land on the Mars surface. He thinks that it's a little bit wasteful. That you you're better going off. You're better leaving it in orbit and going down with a smaller vehicle.
0: Yeah,
1: which I kind of I can I can understand the uh, the thinking behind that. uh,
0: uh, And von Braun was of the same thinking.
1: I mean, I quite like the ones that use Phobos as a as a base, but I believe that's what they did in Red Mars in um, Kim Stanley Robinson. That you you sort of get to Phobos and and then that's your that's your launch down to the surface, and you have it as a base. Arthur C. Clarke did that as well.
0: Yeah, no, that that, that is an interesting ar- architecture. I'm I'm just wondering why why would the SpaceX one want to go direct instead of detaching from orbit? Because it can, I, I guess. I guess from the point of view of uh, engineering, it's easier that when you're coming back, you don't need to do an in-orbit rendezvous, right? Hmm. Yeah, the, uh, Is the
1: in-orb in-in-orbit rendezvous that difficult though.
0: By now, as a species, we have done it. Still difficult.
1: Still difficult, but it seems to be quite routine
0: now. Yeah, but if you could remove it. Also, what do you do? You go to Mars and and if you leave that spacecraft in orbit, that is supposed to be your your crew habitat for the way back, right? But it's, it, it, yeah. But you're not going to leave anyone on board. You're not. They're not going to stay one year in orbit around Mars, right? I mean, maybe you have to leave a skeleton crew, but... But it's even more wasteful when you get
1: back to Earth. So if you then come back into earth's atmosphere using a large rocket again like the starship you've then got to get that all that tonnage back out of earth's gravity well whereas i've been starting to think about that thing that um that eric i know. brought up about using dra- using dragons to actually dock with starships in orbit so you launch on a dragon and then you get get into a starship, go round the moon, get back out of it, and then land in a dragon.
0: Yeah, but I I think he must be so confident in the reduction of the cost.
1: Well, yeah, that, that I mean that's it, isn't it? It's just can you just keep yeah. reusing and reusing and reusing? And you have to have exactly. the booster reusing as well.
0: So if he's so confident that the cost goes down so much, instead of having to use Dragon capsules that then you have to refurbish, to reuse. And and who knows, maybe he reaches a point in which just landing a Starship and launching again is cheaper than a Falcon 9 with a Dragon capsule. It's hard, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe it's the simplicity of architecture. There is a certain beauty to it. Mm. If you dramatically reduce the cost of access to space, as he wants to... Well, I mean, that's it, isn't it?
1: If he can reuse it and reuse it and reuse it, get a, a huge cadence going, get loads and loads and loads of stuff into orbit, then, yeah, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to become an interplanetary species.
0: But but clo- to close on that, I still think that we're missing more in-orbit propellant production instead of launching all this propellant from our planet. Hmm. In-orbit manufacturing of propellant, I think that's, that's, that's one of the keys to this. You could dramatically reduce the number of launches that you actually need to launch.
1: Yeah, or even... Even if you had
0: it on the moon. Yes, indeed. Or a near Earth asteroid. So Matt, but we are not going to to solve it here. No, right? no, These no. Yes, no spend yes. decades yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and, that's right. Amount of resources. <laughs> um, so it, so whatever whatever else uh, happened to your to your mate Zubrin.
1: Well, that, yeah, Zubrin. So yes, we've got a we've got this Mars habitat unit that's landed and and just To give you an idea, it it will kind of be a three-deck vehicle or two- to three-deck vehicle. So you've got sleeping quarters, communal areas, galley kitchens, exercise areas. Um, You've got all the things like closed cycle water purification. Um, You've got working spaces for science and stuff like that, storage spaces, airlocks so that you can go out and actually go on the surface of Mars. You've got to have protection from harmful radiation. Um, so a part of it they might even bury into the ground. And um, and there's a rover on there as well. You then take off, leaving that Mars Habitat unit behind. So the good thing about it is that you've now set up some infrastructure for the next explorers. So each time you go, you're building up um, infrastructure. Uh, return trip to earth though you get into the earth return vehicle uh, and that propulsion stage of the earth return vehicle would be used as the artificial gravity uh, to get it to give you some artificial gravity gravity for the trip back and then every couple of years you would send new crew and all the time you'd be sending these earth return vehicles so that you had sort of a redundant systems dotted around in the same way that Mark Watney and the Martian had to had to go a very long distance to a redundant vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um and of course one of the great things about Mars is it's a lot easier to take off. It's a bit like the moon. It's it's way easier to get out the gravity well, which is it's like if only Earth was just a little bit smaller.
0: We're in the wrong planet. We are
1: we are on the wrong planet, yeah. if if mars had somehow flourished into life then we'd be very much a space-faring species by now
0: or or we would have been already conquered by the martians
1: oh yeah that is true ouch so julio uh shall we uh, uh we've got an announcement haven't we for uh, the british interplanetary society Indeed, indeed. So, yes, um, so we've got Chris Welch, who, uh, Julio, you've you've been taught by. Is that right?
0: No, actually, he arrived to ISU after I graduated from ISU. Oh, okay. But because I'm quite active with the alumni community and I was in the board of trustees of the university and I just visit campus whenever I'm in the area. Uh, so I go to see him. Yeah, yeah. and... I had some really amazing and inspired com- inspiring conversations with Chris over the years. Um, so yeah. I thought, well, since he, um, <laughs> he has an announcement to make and you don't want me to spoil it, and I remembered that uh, this podcast is connected to the British Interplanetary Society mm. in more ways than one. Well, let's... Yeah, let's... That's so. Let's hear from Chris, yeah, that doctor
1: of a doctor of spacecraft engineering, no less from
0: Cranfield. So yeah, yeah. It, and amongst other things, director of the International Space University Masters in Space Studies. Yeah, if,
1: if you ever, if you ever, if you want to look at uh, Chris's CV, go to the ISU and look at his CV. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. It's unbelievable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well if we if we double the time of this podcast we could just we about read them
1: it. all out so and he's yeah he's he's received the Sir Arthur Clark award for space education so there we go so yes let's cut to it aécoute the interplanetary podcast is alive we're joined on the podcast myself and Julio by Chris Welsh from the international Space University who's just i'll let chris say what the announcement was, uh, but welcome to the podcast, Chris. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Good to be here with, uh, with both of
2: you online. Uh, yes, the the announcement uh, earlier this week, uh, the British Interplanetary Society, uh, of which I have been a member since 1979. I joined in my in my first year uh, as a as an undergraduate student. Um, announced that I am now the president elect. There was a, there was an election, and uh, and uh, I'm very very lucky, very honoured, very pleased, and proud to. Be the you know the incoming president for the British Interplanetary Society. Uh, I'll take up uh, take up office in August, so I have a bit of time to get used to the idea um, uh, before I do that. And that will be for a three year term. So uh, uh, another nice thing about it, uh, if I've done my sums correctly, is that uh, I will be the president when we have our 90th anniversary, uh, because we uh, we were founded in 1933. Uh, the British Interplanetary Society is the, is is proud of saying that the world's oldest, uh, you know, still existing space advocacy organisation. There were other societies formed back in the '30s, but they have either merged with other entities to create new bodies, or they have, or they have died. Uh, uh, the BIS was also one of the founders of the International Astronautical Federation, um, and uh, there were thirteen organizations that founded that. And again, the BIS is the only one that is still around. So, um, uh, you know, um, I I will still be alive when we hit, I hope, when we hit our centenary uh, in 2033. But in the meantime, the 90th anniversary in 2023 will be, I I hope, uh, 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 a wonderful celebration.
0: Well, that's quite a resilient organization. What what do you think is the, the secret to it?
2: I think the secret to the BIS's resilience is just the energy, enthusiasm, and commitment of all the people involved. Uh, whether it's the staff who you know actually work for the organisation, or the members, or the people who serve on council, or the numerous volunteers, without which you know we could not deliver what we deliver. And it's just this overall commitment, for passion, for space. That's really what it comes down to.
1: So you're based in Strasbourg. So presumably you're the first remote president.
2: Uh, indeed, yes, uh, and I had, you know, uh, I, I used to live in Southwest London until ten years ago. Uh, you know, just down the railway line from the British Interplanetary Society, and it would have been really a lot more sensible to maybe to be president when I lived in London. Um, but uh, and I did give a did give a lot of thought to. You know whether that was a good idea certainly when i when i first moved over to strasbourg to take up the job at the international space university i thought it was going to be too difficult uh, but i guess it's another one of these things that's a side effect of the of the pandemic which is over the last year we've all had to learn to get much better at using online tools And uh, certainly, if I've managed to run, you know, uh, an entire MSC uh, in space studies for the last year uh, with, uh, you know, remote classes, remote students, remote lecturers, uh, I'm 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 confident that the same can happen with the BIS.
1: Have you got a favourite previous president? There are some particularly famous. Yes,
2: Arthur C. Clarke has to be my 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 favourite. You know. uh, Past president because he was Arthur C. Clarke. Damn it, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, when I was a when I was a child, you know, I I grew up uh, reading science fiction, and this was back in the you know, in the seventies, uh, really. And at that point, you know, the big three science fiction writers were Asimov, Heinlein, and Clarke, and Clarke was the British one. And uh, as well as writing science fiction, he also, you know, wrote books on space travel. And somewhere at some point, I, I got this uh, slim volume uh, on, uh, on space travel you know, in a secondhand bookshop somewhere. And that was where I first started to get into you know, orbit mechanics and rocket propulsion and, and, and so on. And then, of course, there was the science fiction books the, he was his, uh, you know, his role as a futurist and of course 2001 as a space odyssey I mean I was eight or nine when that came out so I didn't see it immediately um, but then I you know I don't recall just how old I was I was probably about 14 or 15 when I did see that and that that was such a powerful vision of the future of space travel because of the amazing special effects plus a kind of wonderful sort of you know millennium, spanning narrative, even if the end of it was a bit freaky and difficult to understand. Uh, but it was just such, such a wonderful film. Um, and uh, as I say, I became aware of the British Interplanetary Society um, uh, and, and then, you know, joined when, when I was a student. And that was how I got most of my space information in those days. You know, the, the space flight magazine, Came out once a month, and that told you everything you needed to know about space. You know, nowadays, you just you, know, you just look on your on your smartphone, and it's all there. Which is actually a, a challenge for the for the small space societies, such as the BIS and other ones globally, because uh, you know in the past people joined because they wanted to find out about space. You know now they don't need to join to find out about space. In fact, there's so much content that you can't possibly you know um, you know consume it all. Uh, and so I think part of the challenge for the for the, for the BIS is is working out um, you know, how to, you know, how to provide what members and potential members want. Uh, and so uh, certainly I expect, as president, to have a, 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 an increasing focus on on students and young professionals. Uh, trying to uh, uh, improve the uh, you know the demographic of the uh, of the BIS you know build the membership numbers, uh, develop new networks uh, because the world is you know much more complicated than it was in 1933. Uh, you know in 1933 the BIS was those you know those cranks those nutcases who thought that space travel was possible. Uh, you know now it's well yes everybody knows it's possible and you can make a lot of money from it. Um, the BIS is still doing its speculative work. Its motto is "From imagination to reality," and uh, you know it has its famous copies of the journal of the British Interplanetary Society. My favourites were always the ones on interstellar travel uh, when I was when I was younger. Uh, in those days, they were famous for having the red covers. You know, the, the normal ones were blue, and the and the interstellar ones were red. And I still have you know all my red copies of Javis, and and you know that that. That idea of doing the speculative stuff continues. There are many organizations in the UK and globally who look at space. And some of them have an industrial focus. And uh, some of them have a kind of Earth applications focus. But, but I think there has to be a place where you know there are people doing the really forward-looking stuff. Uh, and the BIS has its technical projects. Uh, and I hope those will also continue to develop. Uh, to uh, you know to examine all those concepts that people think are crazy now but in 10, 20, 30, 50 years people go, yeah, well it's obvious that was a good idea.
1: One example of that is the is the nuclear propulsion between here and Mars, isn't it? Because that that I think that was the first ever published um paper was in JBIS about nuclear propulsion. That's interesting in space. I I I didn't know that. But, but, I think it was. <laughs> but, it would, but it certainly
2: wouldn't surprise me because, uh, I mean, uh, another person who was involved with the British Interplanetary Society who wrote uh, fiction was Patrick Moore, um, uh, you know, the, the the astronomer. And I remember reading, and he had a whole series of Mars-related kind of adolescent science fiction books, and in, in, in all those, the the rockets that went to and from Mars were nuclear. Um, uh, and so yes, n- nuclear propulsion was was focused on very early on. Um, and it's interesting to see how it kind of comes and goes. And just at the moment in the US, uh, it's undergoing, a, you know, a, definitely an upswing. Uh, there's more interest in it. Um, not so much in Europe at the moment. Um, and again, the Russians, always difficult to know just what the Russians are doing. Um, but they, it, there's some signs that uh, there's more interest in, in Russian propulsion, uh, in Russia, in nuclear propulsion in Russia.
1: Presumably, we, we, there's a little bit of a tradition of nuclear propulsion, uh, particularly at J. if you think about people like uh, Val Cleaver and, and Alan Bond and all those people that that talk, that talk about nuclear propulsion.
2: Uh, oh yes, and uh, in, in fact, at the International Space University, on our master's program, uh, we're shortly going to be um, redoing an elective, a, a short two-week kind of module for our students on interstellar travel uh in this case particularly on world ship design uh which we're doing with our with our friends from the initiative for interstellar studies which again is kind of linked into the bis most of the people who are members of ifrs are also members of you know of bis mm-hmm. and uh, and you know there's a lot of collaboration on projects and certainly all the propulsion systems that you would need for a, for a world ship, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically nuclear fusion. So, you know, otherwise, you know, the only other way to do it is, is, you know, large sails and and humongous great lasers, you know, uh, in the kind of Robert forward tradition. Uh, But if you want an independently propelled, uh, um, you know, starship uh, that, that, travels at sublight speeds yes it's really got to be nuclear propulsion and fusion propulsion
0: and you mentioned the young professionals youth students the technical projects you you, you used to be already on the outreach committee right uh, the, I'm on. I'm on
2: the BIS education and
0: outreach. Uh, okay. You remain committee. there, or as a president, you. Yes.
2: Yes. Remain. No. Okay. I, I. will. I. I will stay on that. I mean, space education and outreach has been one of my things for all my. You know, all my, all my career. Um, uh, I used to have a uh, an organisation called the Space Education Council in the UK that ran for about 10 years, which was a sort of. Um, uh, if you like a kind of trade or trade body for 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 groups, organisations, and people interested in space education and outreach, um, and I was I was chair of UK SEDS many 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 decades ago uh, when my hair was the colour that yours is now, you know, rather than being the white that it is.
0: In my, mine or uh, Matt's?
1: I was going to say
0: we we got snap we got snap on the hair. Yes, yes, so yes, um, I, yeah. so yeah. I I what I wanted to ask you is so you mentioned these projects. Do you have any in uh, during these three years? Do you have any ex- other particular objective in mind what, that you want to accomplish?
2: Uh, well, well, beyond the technical you know, building the technical projects. Well, I, I think the things we need we need more members. Uh, i've already mentioned that that's you know that's a problem for all the small traditional space societies in the world so we need more members uh, we need younger members um, we need I, I think to to boost our technical projects uh i think we need to boost our communication and and outreach um, to the broader community um, and uh <laughs> And then lastly, another personal interest of mine, and I have to say, I have no idea, you know, I haven't, you're hearing this first, so I, I've no, I've, I've no idea what the rest of the US and council are. I'm, I'm also very interested in, in space and culture, uh, you know, art, music, you know, the non-scientific, non-technical side of space. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I have a poem on the International Space Station at the moment. It's been up there for almost a thousand days. Um, we should get that back in. Should get that back in January, uh, and I know a whole bunch of space artists, uh, um, and I'm, I'm keen, if possible, to get the BIS to 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 throw its net even wider than it than it does at the moment. And to try and engage with that community uh, in some way, uh, maybe it'll be in the form of you know just some lectures um, uh, from from artists. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an artist based in London, an Irish artist. Uh, uh, Eva, and um, she was an artist in residence at S.T.E.C.K. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, and so she has some interesting, you know, perspectives. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of, you know, of, of, of other space-related artists um, in, in all sorts of media, and. I don't think people largely know they exist. Uh, the space community itself, but also the public—they're they're sort of working on this stuff because they find it interesting. But they, you know, it, it's difficult for them to, you know, to, to intersect to get the visibility. And I think I would like the, you know, the BIS if it can to, you know, to champion them. Uh, but of course, this always depends on, you know, on resources.
1: Well, funnily enough, I mean, we uh, next week. Uh, I've just done an interview with uh, a, a couple of artists who've done the Mars House in Bristol. I don't know if you know about that project. I've but, but I don't know about it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really fascinating because because one of the great things is it, it's it, they've got a team of architects that that did the Antarctic um, uh, buildings. Yes. Uh, and. Um, uh, but they're kind of leaving it open, and so that it's much more the people's response to the to, to the actual inside space that sort of grows the space. And I and I, and I think it is really important. The art, I think, artistic perspectives on things are incredibly important, particularly when it comes to yeah. If if we're ever to going to go to live on Mars, but but I do exactly the same thing. I we we sometimes have musicians, we sometimes have artists, and we sometimes have and we talk about music all the time because I think there's a massive space music connection and uh, I think I must be the only person that's done a gig with a band in the BIS uh, <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke House. Excellent
2: well yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 so that, that'll that'll be another uh, you know a, a thing I, I you know I will publicly sign up to now that we are going to have at least one gig at Arthur C. Clarke House during my time as president I don't right. know what it'll be or how but you know uh, we we will do that
1: well, I'll tell you what. The two hundred fiftieth, um, is it? Gonna, yeah, the two hundred fiftieth episode, or maybe the three hundredth episode of the podcast, because we because it was the hundredth episode of the podcast, we did a live gig there. So please have us back, Chris. Well, tell tell me tell, tell, tell
2: me tell me the tell me the date, you know, of the you know. Of the... Yeah,
1: well, it's well, this is episode two two eight. So I guess it's for, <laughs> it's probably too soon for two fifty, but for three hundred, yeah, we we'd be. I don't know, seventy weeks away or something like that. So, oh, well, what's that? That's, that's like cool. A year and a half. We can, yeah, no, we yeah. we
2: we we can do that. We should uh, be all
0: vaccinated by then, right?
2: And particularly because I mean, the BIS's you know motto again is from imagination to reality, and really, all of the all of the really interesting projects I've been involved in in my life have come up through imagination and conversations like this one you know uh, and then okay you get into the planning and implementation phase and then you have committees and all the rest of it but in my experience the good ideas tend to come up in in social settings um, and if you look back at the early pictures of, of the bis from the 1930s the meetings are all in pubs you know <laughs> it's uh, you know and the you know the, the. i would love to know you know how many rockets were designed on the back of beer mats uh, you know during d- during those meetings you know so you know, pubs coffee houses you know informal conversations you know the, the interchange between people that's where the ideas come from and then yeah then you set up the formal apparatus for, for for making them happen i think so yeah you know, it, it's that first imagination stage that, that makes the new things
0: happen i i personally can't wait to get back to that. Uh, I remember yeah. some good conversations uh, around the International Astronautical Federation with you in bars as well. As yeah, well. yeah, 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 absolutely. Wait to get that back. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, now that you mentioned this part on culture and arts. Of course, this this podcast has a certain history with the BIS, I guess. Yeah, uh, it does. Maybe can explain a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I think if there is any way that we can help to on the on that on that objective that you have. I would be more than happy to pitch in.
2: Excellent, that 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 that, that would be great. So uh, you know, uh, and it's only been a few days, you know, since I you know since I got the announcement that I'm going to be president. So I haven't really had time to you know to think of a quotes presidential agenda unquote, which all sounds a bit kind of you know as if I've got delusions of adequacy. Um, but. Uh, Uh, But uh, I I will bear that in mind, because over the coming months, I need to think about, you know, what I would like the BIS to do. Um, You know, I I mean, to be clear, you know, the the, the president of the BIS is not somebody with kind of a massive amount of power. It's not like (laughs) there are no BIS executive orders that I can sign to say make this happen. Uh, It's all got to be agreed by the BIS Council. Um, uh, but I'm hoping that in my role as president, I can sort of, uh, you know, promote some, uh, you know, some uh, some new initiatives, uh, and uh, you know, lead the BIS in in a in a direction that I think is, you know, essential for it to go. So, yes, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know we have the interplanetary podcast, we have the British Interplanetary Society, we have the history, which I will let Matt uh, explain in a second, because uh, I was on council. Uh, when the idea came up, and I remember going, "Yes, that's a good idea," but I wasn't. You know, that was the sum of my involvement. Was going, "Yes, tick, good idea."
0: That, that so, was uh, actually be, be, before my time, so I would love to hear a little bit more about that. About that. So, Matt, to, 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 it's my turn
2: to what? interview you now, Matt. So, <laughs> yeah, well, how, how did this happen?
1: It happened because I actually applied for a job at the uh, at the BIS, and I got down to the final three, and then had a job interview with you, Chris, and I a few others. That. And and I and I didn't I didn't make the final cut. So, but but I thought I really still wanted to do something for the BIS because I was really enthusiastic about it, and uh, and so I I started doing the podcast, and and it was quite funny because it, it's a mix, isn't it? It's a mix of yeah, hardcore rocket scientists and space enthusiasts. I think, you know, a lot of people came on side and obviously David Baker started having regular slots on the show and doing stuff and and I ended up writing a few things for the for the Spaceflight magazine and stuff like that. So it's been it's been a really good mutual relationship, obviously something that I'm really super proud of just because of the connection to things like Arthur C Clarke and I think I I don't think I've met a person since doing like all these interviews who doesn't say that sci-fi wasn't their route into doing it. Virtually everyone was just like, you know, particularly my age, it was Arthur C. Clarke and things like that. And yeah. then later it's Star Wars and Star Trek, and then later it's The Expanse, and then it's all, you know. And you, you think, yeah, sci-fi is just unbelievably important. And I think the BIS have been really influential on sci-fi as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, interchange between the two. So that's
0: that's the history, Julio, I'm happy things worked out the way they did if if there is any way that we can support you and help you on this you know um count me in absolutely um, no that,
2: that, that sounds that sounds like an excellent plan to me so uh we will we'll, we'll find a way to make this happen
0: by the way chris will there be any since you wear all these hats with these different organizations any any new ways of connecting the isu with the BIS with the iaf I, I, well, I stop I mean, saying well, acronyms
2: now. Yeah. Well, I, I I I will certainly be trying to do this. I'm always looking for 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 new ways of of doing this uh, doing this uh, sort of thing, uh, and certainly i mean the bis is one of the founder members of the iaf but of course the space societies are now entirely dwarfed by the space agencies and the big space companies but uh and arthur c Clarke
0: uh, was essential for the inauguration for the foundation of isu as well
2: But one of the things that I'm particularly pleased about was that uh, when I I was a vice president of the IAF for three years from 2015 to, to 2018, and it was the BIS which nominated me, and many of the nominations for vice presidents come from space agencies and companies and big, big organizations, so I was really pleased to be there you know partly as a kind of representative of the BIS and the and the small societies and you know the ones that initially set up the the the, uh, the federation so i'm always keen to remind the federation of its roots when I, when I when i get the opportunity and i'm still on multiple IAF committees um as the as the immediate preceding vice president for education and workforce development which was what my role was uh, I, I'm on something called the next generation coordination committee because actually the IAF now has so many different groups doing things related to education outreach and young people and young professionals that we had to set up a committee to enable all these groups to talk to each other and and ISU is is, is part of a you know I also sit on that committee by being some somebody from ISU, you know, as well. Uh, and, and so there's, there's that sort of, uh, you know, cross-connection. Uh, and then I'm already sort of trying to build stronger links between ISU and the BIS. Um, we, we had some in the past when when we used to have a symposium at, at, at ISU. Uh, we, we, yeah, we tried to get the, you know, the papers from the symposium published in JBIS. Uh, or a selection of them. Uh, Unfortunately, we had stopped doing the uh, symposium a few years ago, but there's that possibility as well. Um, I'm hoping that some of the some of the papers that some of my students do might end up in in JBIS, and I've got one or two other ideas that um, I'm not going to talk about on the podcast now because
1: uh, you know, <laughs> <It's> too soon. A little bit too soon,
2: but yeah, I, but I, I have some ideas, but I need to sort of talk to some people first before I, before I go, you know, go go public on those. One of my enduring pleasures, uh, you know, in life is is finding two people or two organisations or a combination that I think could potentially have some synergy and bringing them together and seeing, you know, new things happen as a result. Um, you know, sometimes it's introducing one person to another. You know, sometimes it's, you know, bringing two organisations together. And certainly since I'm at ISU and, you know, uh, Will be president of the BIS. I, I would be hoping for some sort of closer cooperation.
0: Chris, thank you for giving us your time today. Much appreciated.
1: You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. There we go. I enjoyed that interview. I enjoyed that interview a lot. Uh, we'll
0: get definitely get Chris back on. President-elect, new management for the BIS. <laughs> yep. You're, you're a member, I'm, I'm, right? Yeah, I'm a member. I'm a fellow of the of the British Interplanetary. Yeah. Get that. I'm not. I have no relationship except this podcast. There's something. I, I, we should do something about it. I yeah, think. you. Sh- yeah. Do you accept only Brits?
1: No, it's it's it's. Um, there's <laughs> there's there's you. even an Italian branch,
0: for example. No, I, I was teasing you. Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to to have a look, That's especially with the new things that it will offer. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Zubrin's a member. Jonathan McDowell's a member.
0: Nice little group, yeah.
1: It's the oldest continually running space organization yeah. in the world.
0: I think you should do more podcast recordings live there. Oh yeah, no, definitely, we definitely need to do another gig. I remember that one. That was f- that. I, I was not there. I just listened to it as an as the audience, and that was fun. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it's brilliant. There's a there's a video. It's it's one of the ones we got on YouTube video as well. It's good with some songs, Bowie covers. Did you know today's pie Day? By the way. Fourteenth no. of fourteenth of March, three point one four.
0: Well, yeah, if you say it in the American way, yeah,
1: it's American Pie Day. I'm <laughs> very
0: <laughs> American, American, Pie, American Day.
1: Pie Day. ESA don't have a Mars mission, human Mars mission at all. It's all about robots.
0: Well, but that that is normal because ESA does not have its own human capable rocket. We have astronauts, and ESA is very much focused on international collaboration. Right? Yeah. Remember, Matthias was even training with the Chinese. I would assume, unless 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 there is a really a big big change in the ambition of European governments, if if European governments would have the the political will to to go for more human spaceflight, we we are ready. We can do it. Okay, We we have studies, but the realistic situation now is that normally you would get behind one of the existing architectures, Hmm. could be behind with the Americans. In fact, uh, do you recall that, um, I think it was for Matias' interview, that it was announced that ESA would have some astronauts going to the gateway. Hmm. I would assume that then, yes, the, the work would be behind the diplomacy, behind getting european astronauts on these mars missions whenever they happen well let's face it unless there is a big big change in the priorities let's face it when there's
1: if there is a mars mission announced after artemis because artemis is supposed to be a mars mission it has mars in the logo um and as donald trump said the moon is part of mars (laughs) <laughs> and so it's <laughs> which I felt sorry for him because I know what he meant Europe is definitely going to be part of that trip in the same way that it's part of Artemis building the service module and building bits of the gateway etc etc
0: oh, for sure So for sure and so I mean I, I'm not you'd expect to <laughs> want to sound as an official statement no. from ESA no, 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 or no. anything I'm just no, I'm going to push you push you into official slide. No, I'm only joking <laughs> <laughs> as, as a say as, as a poor employee I, I just expect that if the again the political will and the the Americans the Russians the Chinese the i don't know in 50 years if they if, if uh, in some science fiction books the Kenyans are the ones that take over because of they can launch from mount Kilimanjaro i assume we'll be trying to do <laughs> inter, uh, international collaboration with whoever is there oh god uh, it's, it's really, if you think about it, for ESA, international collaboration is at, at its core. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every project we have, every, 90 something percent of the projects we have are international collaborations between ESA member states, yeah.
1: right? So the next. So the,
0: to collaborate with the Chinese or the Americans is an extension of that. So
1: the next the next batch of European astronauts might be the ones stepping out of a Chinese or American spacecraft. Onto the surface of Mars.
0: Hmm. When do you think the Mars landing happens?
1: I think the earliest we can hope for really is the late 30s, early 40s.
0: Yeah. I mean, for... And that would be us, a risky mission. For how many times we heard 2030, every 10 years, yes. So I, my, my money is on Von Braun for this. 20, 2050,
1: 2054. 2054,
0: yep. So if we have astronauts being hired now, let's assume they are in there. Assuming, imagine that, okay, in the last election, you had people more in their mid-30s, mm. right? So I would guess that by the time we go to Mars, they would be retired.
1: Yeah, but that but that might be an advantage to be, say, in your 50s because then the radiation risk isn't such a disaster. Um,
0: but we're talking about 30 years from now. Yeah, so if you're so in your 35, 30s... So 65. Yeah.
1: So you can get fit 60-year-olds.
0: But would you send 60-year-olds to Mars?
1: It might be that that might be a clever thing to do, because it's someone that's where the radiation risk isn't as bad, mm-hmm. Um they've obviously got lots of experience so as long as they're he- they're still healthy it might be a good thing to send someone of that age
0: no, no now that i'm 40 60 doesn't sound so exactly
1: old, now i'm 50 it certainly doesn't <laughs> 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 that, so i think that's why i'm pushing for it well i think so yeah. yeah
0: okay i like it one of these one of these next batch of astronauts could be the first european on mars yeah
1: well say if i go, say if we go for my mid 40s as in, it, they land in say 40, 44, then they they'd definitely be all right, wouldn't they? They'd be like 50, 54, something like that, which is only a little bit older than Matthias and Tim Peak.
0: No, and in the mid fifties, um, I think it, it would be would be totally yeah. fine. Again, uh, Paolo Paolo Nespoli. How old is Paolo Nespoli? He's a, he's a bit older, isn't he? He's like I think he's yeah, but he was flying until no long ago. Yeah,
1: well, of course, John Glenn is the is the ultimate one, isn't he?
0: Yes, but that was a specific thing. Okay, that was a specific mission. Um because it was him and there was a big component of it was the age. But Paolo Nespoli, he's now sixty-three and he flew twenty seventeen.
1: John Glenn was seventy seven when he went up on the space.
0: Yeah. But again, it was a one off he was not an active astronaut at the time. No. Uh, Nespoli he was 60 years old when he went to the ISS wow was he really? or at least wow. almost almost either 59 or, or 60 I, I don't I, we would have to do the calculation but <laughs> so we're talking about if you would send someone 60 years old into space Europe did it already that's incredible incredible that is amazing and this guy this, I mean Paolo Nespoli at 60 had to land <laughs> back on his Soyuz, ah oh, man, yeah. They... Imagine the impact on your on, on your back. Ouch! I mean, I, I can only think of my back at forty. Imagine your back at <laughs> sixty. I'm, of course, Paulinus, but is probably infinitely more fit than any of us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's definitely fitter than me post lockdown, Matt. That's for certain. Um, right. Talking of that, we we better post lockdown this podcast. So I've got a hope in hell of editing the goddamn thing.
0: Good thing we wanted to keep it to forty minutes. Good interview. job, we've kept
1: it short. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Well, uh, I've just, okay. I'm going to welcome the uh, latest few people that have joined Patreon recently. Thanks very much for that. That's that's absolutely awesome. And the people that left reviews as on, um, I, I I called out for some reviews on iTunes and and got some.
0: Wait, I want to hear those reviews. Space podcasts don't get better than this. A perfect blend blend of friendly enthusiasm and nerdy details made accessible. Listeners can keep up to date on the latest space developments and then take a deep dive into perennial topics in the expert interviews. The hosts are very well informed and bring out the best from their interviewees. Oh, that's good, isn't it? I've not read that one. It's new. It's from Tyrell McAllister. Ah, good on you. Killer podcast covers a wide variety of space topics and has a ton of interesting guests.
1: Ah. It does make it all worth it, doesn't it? When you hear stuff like that.
0: I already have offered to them your service as recording messages for their answering Oh, questions. yeah, that
1: was right. Didn't I have to send them a mug?
0: <laughs> I
1: have to listen back I, to the episode. I offer now.
0: something <laughs> intangible. You offer material material objects.
1: <laughs> Oh, no. Right, we've got to have to wrap this up. People want to uh, go and look at the show notes, of which I'm going to put loads this week. Where should they go, Julio? They should go to interplanetary.org. Exactly. And if they want to be patrons, like a couple of people have this week, thank you so much, is patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. And, uh, yeah, you can join the Discord and join um, all the Discordians, the Spodcats. And next week, one of the Spodcats is co-hosting with me, Rob. And it's all going to be about space architecture, and it's a very good one indeed.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. No, I,
1: I'm super looking. Lucky. I love the Habitat ones, they're really good. So, form part of our Habitat playlist.
2: Bye bye, Spot Cats!
1: Bye bye.